Welcome to The Lounge, where I, Amina Hughes, talk to people in the music, film and other creative industries about the essence of their craft. I'm known in your show business as a triple threat. Threat number one, I can act. Threat number two, I can see. And threat number three. I'm annoying. <laughs> uh, is that how you say it? Gianmarco Sarezi. That's great. Yeah, add as much. Okay. As I had a feeling uh, in Australia it'd be something like Gianmarco Sarezi. So. Uh, maybe. Yeah, I have some Australian friends. They they eventually <laughs> got it. Okay, so Gianmarco Sarezi. Sarezi is a stand-up comedian, actor, and writer, and I might add an excellent Jeff Goldblum impersonator. Mm. <laughs> More of that later. Uh, his stand-up has been featured on Netflix, Bonding, Vanity Fair, and Real Housewives of New York. Ooh. He's won a bunch of comedy festivals. He's a Moth Story Slam winner, and he's played off-Broadway. His acting credits include the movie Hustlers with Jennifer Lopez and the upcoming Billy Crystal, Tiffany Haddish film Here Today. His writing has been featured in many outlets, including Esquire and the Huffington Post, Gianmarco Sorezi, welcome to the lounge. Hello, how are you? Not too bad. Uh, firstly, I want to say thank you so much uh, and give a special shout out to your roommate for being okay with you joining me at this time. I know it's very late there. Yes, yes. Um, it's only 11. I mean, I, I normally I go to bed at 3. I'm still on kind of comedy club time, even though there's no comedy club to go to. All right, well, that's good. Not too bad. Um, my neighbor, as you know, is, uh, fixing his fence. So I'm past the jackhammer stage, but if there's the occasional grinder, uh, I'll let you know, it's my only experience with any kind of grinder. So now grinder, is that a jackhammer in Australia? No, it's a, some kind of buzzsaw kind of thing, I think. Okay. I just, it's always great. uh, Australians, you guys have, uh, such great terminology. That I like, I, I, I was in an acting company with a bunch of Australians and um, it was very cool just to learn all the abrivos. Is that still said there, abrivo? Or is no. that like an old, is that we a have thing? A, well, we have a lot of abbreviations, but I don't think abbreviation is one of them. <laughs> I, they said abrivos, unless they were lying to me, unless they were trying I to think, set me up for mm. failure. No way. I'm going to ask my friend Christopher Chung. He's Australian. Abrivo. Oh, Abrivos. I haven't heard of that one. Now, where Maybe in Australia are you? I'm in Perth, Western Australia. The most Sydney, isolated Sydney, city Sydney, in the world. Sydney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe they say Abrivo there. Yeah, I don't know. I've lived over there. I lived in Sydney for four years. I've lived in Melbourne. Mm. I don't know, man. Maybe Tasmania. Tasmania. That's where they say Abrivo? It could be a thing in Tasmania. There's a lot of weird things yeah. happen in Tasmania. Sure, sure. I like, I just, I have very basic understanding, but Tasmania is the place where it's like, oh, Tasmania, that's where they're (laughs) eating crazy shit and hunting and all sorts of stuff. It's a little strange. I drove around uh, Tasmania once uh, for a couple of weeks and actually maybe it was even less than that because it's very small. But yeah, I, I came across a town that had five people living in it literally population of five and uh they were all looking out through their lace curtains 
as we were passing through the town. We had to pass through the town to get to a barge, to put our car on a barge to get across the river. It's the only reason we were there. It's a little strange. Sure, sure. It sounds like it. Yeah. Um, Now, I met you. I don't know if you remember this, but I met you last year in June. I was over in New York for the Independent Music Awards, and I met you in a comedy club. And I'd been in an Italian restaurant, and um, the maitre d' had been playing my music in the in the restaurant and plying me with free wine. And then I had this, like, my hotel had given me that, you know, free tickets to a comedy club, which is never really free because you got to buy two drinks for, like, 20 bucks. So, so I was like, ah, it's my last night in New York. I have to be at the airport at 5.30. Should I go to bed or should I get really drunk and hit a comedy club? Yeah. So, yeah, spoiler alert. Uh, so I rock up to the comedy club with all this wine in me and I think, well, uh, it's a, it wouldn't make sense to keep drinking red wine. That's a bad idea. I'll switch to whiskey because that's the kind of decision you make when you're full of red wine. Nice. So by the time you'd finished your set and then I came up to you afterwards and I remember saying to you, I was like, you are so funny. <laughs> uh-huh. But I promise you it wasn't just the whiskey talking and I've followed you ever since. Um my first question for you really is just how you're doing over there. I mean, you know, we have we have the internet over here and we watch the news and things seem a little crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's a it's starting to get cold and so it feels very sad. A stand-up comic I talked to today just said he's really depressed and so am I. All the outdoor shows are kind of coming to an end because New York gets so cold. And our numbers are spiking. So we're all kind of bracing ourselves for new restrictions or some people are doing inside comedy shows, but a lot of people are saying "You're you're a bad person if you go do inside comedy shows right now because we have a spike and you shouldn't contribute to the spike. The government's not helping with anything financially. Trump is still claiming he won the election and we know we most people assume it'll work out but it's like it's just disgusting and embarrassing and so uh dark time it's just dark when we had the outdoor shows it really gave us an outlet to at least you know do a quarter of what we used to do but i don't have a show today i don't i zoom shows zoom show tomorrow but it's just not the same so Mm -hmm. The winter just feels ominous and it's it's starting and before I know it, it's going to be freezing and uh, I think New York's just feeling it. So I might go to L.A. My mom lives in L.A. Uh, maybe in January, February, unless it's spiking so much, they say you can't go anywhere. Maybe I'll go to the hot places and do outdoor shows there. We'll see. But it's scary. It's sad. It's dark. It's weird. Yeah. And you had a tornado yesterday in New York. We did. It was it was in Queens. I don't know how bad the damage was. I didn't see on the news, but I had some friends in Queens. And tornadoes is just not what you know. New York, you New York City. You don't worry about too much natural disaster stuff in Manhattan, at least. So it's all a mess. <laughs> twenty twenty, baby. <laughs> yeah, almost twenty twenty one though. It's gonna be just as bad, and we'll be like, yep. This is just reality now. I know. A friend of mine uh, posted on Twitter about the tornado and was like, what? Because he lives in New York. And he said, I thought everything would be okay when Biden and Harris won. And I said, they're not settled in yet into the White House. Don't There's a lot of people that thought coronavirus 
not a lot, but a, a, too many, that the coronavirus would go away once the election was done, that the media was hyping it up or that Biden was hyping it up as a, as a means and he won and the numbers are worse than ever. Mm. Um, and we're just kind of broken in, in the sense of the first three or four months, it was crazy. We, I, at least for me, I was indoors. I go to the grocery store and that was about it. And it felt like I was going crazy. And most people are like, I'm not going back to that. And uh, it's just brutal. Our government sucks. What is it like in Australia right now? Like as indoor dining half capacity? Are you open completely? It depends whereabouts you are in Australia, but I, I'm very lucky where I am uh, in Western Australia. Our premier actually cut off our state from the rest of the country effectively. So wow. I, I, quite a quite a few months ago. So um, nobody in, nobody out. Um, complete border closure, and we don't. We haven't had any uh, community transmission since. We had nine deaths at the very beginning uh, back in March, right. April. So yeah, everyone's out. Gigs are on. People are at music venues, and um, amazing. It's you know, hard to what we see videos from. New Zealand, particularly, or, or like Vietnam, and it's just like, fuck. There was a concert like in Wuhan, and it looked this packed concert. And it's just like, god damn. Yeah. We suck. America just so, it just showed how fucking messed up we are. It's, surpri a, it's surprising. It's been really surprising to watch um, America. I won't lie. It's, it's, it really has come down to management. It really has. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, I don't know how, it's, I don't think I have a good view of how other countries view us. I went around Europe once, and this was when Bush had just been president. And like the, the tour guide, because my name is Gianmarco Cerezi, they assumed I was Italian. It was an Australian tour guide. And uh, there was something about Bush doing something stupid. And the tour guide looked at me, I was like, ah, those Americans are such fucking retards, eh? And I was like, Oh, no parlo inglese, io sono italiano. It was just interesting to be, to, to really witness just like, oh, you think Americans are, are dumb, I don't blame you. And then I just don't know how, I don't know how you guys view, maybe you could tell me like, do you know with Trump, at least that like half the country is like, we think this is the worst thing that's ever happened? Or do you um, think like Americans all love Trump? Trump is all America. It's gonna be brutal. I have no uh, patriotic like. Okay. You couldn't offend me if you tried. <laughs> I'm like, um, you know, talk about how Americans are viewed, but don't insult your American guest. <laughs> no, no, no. I really like, you know, you could you could have it. I think that I think that the the number of people who've supported. Trump and his views has been overwhelmingly surprising around the world. I think it's been very eye-opening and I think that some of the the um the views that he has um that are shared that are that are people are coming out openly in different countries including in Australia and sharing his views a, a minority of people in Australia but um also the conspiracy theories and everything that he's touting I think it's been eye-opening and I mean when people say, you know, oh, Biden's um, 14 points ahead or whatever. I'm like, why isn't he 83 points ahead? I don't understand that. Your, it your doesn't problem. make sense. It's just because of your guy, um, Murdoch. That's on you you guys. You guys. Uh, <laughs> he lives in Australia, right? 
I don't know. I don't want anything to do with him. He's awful. I saw some clip on a. Uh, it was on Twitter. It was your, I believe, your the Australian former prime minister was like calling out some reporter for Murdoch, and he was like, "When are you going to confront this guy? He's ruining the world." And it was yeah. a really like, it was a really intense kind of call out. This reporter writer was very offended, and the guy the former prime minister just laid into him. Um, and it was good to watch, but Murdoch's the guy. Yeah. The guy. Yeah, I know. He, he owns a lot of uh, media in Australia and a lot of media in America. And he certainly um, touts a lot of those conservative views, which have proven to be dangerous. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, apologies for that. <laughs> <laughs> I made my TV debut on Law and Order SVU. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was a very small part. I played Ice T's waiter. <laughs> so you know, to prepare for the role, I actually became a waiter for twelve years. <laughs> Between taking orders, you know, I'd sing songs and dance on the tables, and that's not what Chipotle is known for. <laughs> you recently had to move apartments. I have to move in a few weeks. Um, I just found out. So exciting. Um, what a pain, but you know, we don't have the same situation with COVID. But you moved from Harlem. What were some of the best and worst things about living in Harlem? Harlem is it was pretty nice, like they they built a Whole Foods uh, right after I moved there. Like uh, we had when we had a lot of uh, like marches for Black Lives Matter in America. And some of the marches really called out the fact that Harlem was being gentrified. And Harlem has a rich, has a very rich history that I, 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 could, I would uh, fuck it up if I tried to explain it. But it was like a, a place for black people to thrive uh, in in a in a world in an America that was particularly hostile to them, and then me, I moved to Harlem because I just graduated college and the rent was cheap there. But I was part of this wave of uh, you know uh, mostly young white people moving in, and the neighborhood African American owned stores being shut down, and so some of these marches were were talking about the gentrifiers and like go home. And it was this feeling of like, oh, that's me. They're talking about. Um, I liked it because it just it just felt different from where I I grew up. I I uh, felt like I wasn't around um, people that had the same background as me, or or just not like a shit. I grew up in a very like super white neighborhood with a real lack of diversity and culture. And Harlem, it just felt like there was a lot more of that. Um, and I, I hope I didn't cause too much damage by existing there. I think the whole foods would have gone up with or without me. Um, but uh, it was it could it was loud. I was right on the street of I was right on Malcolm X Boulevard. Wow. Um, and it could when I first moved in. I, 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 my uh, people I had the lease with, they said I could pick whichever room I wanted. And I had this thought, I was like, I want to be right by the street. I want to feel the pulse of the city every day. <laughs> like I regretted it for the next nine years. 
so many just the horrible things I heard and four in the morning and construction and um yeah there were the there were these guys there were a lot of Rastafarian guys who would get stoned on my doorstep older guys and um they, they were always very nice to me um and it was uh it, it just it just was its own world and I, I there was beautiful Marcus Garvey Park Central Park was right there but I had roommates and I was happy to finally move to a place where I lived alone. I feel very happy with living alone. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm like, I'm on the Lower East Side. It's a, it's a great deal. And I'm just kind of waiting to see what it looks like when the world reopens. Cause everything's shut down, outdoor dining, but there's a cool movie theater. I can't wait to see a movie there in 2025 um, and uh, <laughs> East Village Park. So. It's good. I never lived in Brooklyn. And there's part of me that's like, it's a whole world that I never experienced and is a little weird. I go to Brooklyn from time to time. And it's just, I, I once went to, I'm Jewish. I went to a Shabbat dinner once and like, they started to hand out MDMA at the meal. And we're <laughs> like, after the Jewish prayer started doing astrology readings. And part of me is like, man, I'm glad I, I didn't need to be a part of this. And then, <laughs> so... I don't know. I, I like New York. I don't know how to drive. So there's not too many places in America that are friendly to that. And um, I hope to really experience the Lower East Side someday in the next year or two. What has 2020 done to stand up comedy? I know you've been doing a lot of shows in parks and over Zoom and you've, you have a new special that recently came out on Amazon Prime called Shelf Life. Can you talk a bit about how you've had to adapt this year and how your special came about? Yeah, so basically, uh, I was I felt like I was making good progress in my career in that for the month of April, I had four weekends where I was headlining out of town. Um, very small, small venues, but like I had started uh, uh, figuring out the kind of merch I wanted to sell. So, uh, for example, I was going to go to Detroit and it was like a Friday night, a Saturday night, a small comedy club hundred dollars each show. I, I would lose money overall, but then with the merch, maybe I could break even, almost break even. And it just felt cool. It felt like I'd be doing hours. I could film it. It just felt like I was getting to this place where I could really explore as a comedian. And then mid-March, it just like shut down. It felt so fast. It felt really quick from like, a, is this going to be a thing to everything is closed and we don't know when it'll be reopened. So it was very scary. Um, people very quickly started doing like shows. I don't know exactly how long it took, but maybe two or three weeks, people were trying Zoom, trying Insta Live, trying Facebook Live. And uh, Zoom kind of became the standard because we, we realized that you needed to be able to hear laughter for it to be enjoyable at all. So... I was doing a lot of Zoom shows and it just felt like you're gonna do your old jokes. It just felt weird. So people started writing new material. Of course, everyone's writing about the same subject. So you had to be creative. You had to like really push yourself to move past that first joke. Um, and I ended up writing a lot of material that I started feeling proud of. And, and even though it had like a very short shelf life, it was about uh, when you know, coronavirus first started, I don't know what it was like there, but like 
cleaning groceries was this huge thing everyone was doing and it took an enormous amount of time. And um, so you'd write a joke about that and then you'd do it a couple shows and you'd fine tune it to really, really pop. And then a week later it felt dated. So I had all this material. Um, as outdoor shows started reopening, I, I did uh, voiceover for an audio book. Someone, someone found me on Instagram and um, I, she said like, we should film an outdoor special. And I'm, I'm a, a little bit of a perfectionist in that like, part of me didn't want to film anything or put an album out until I was doing like an hour that I was like, this is perfect. Or I was in a place that I knew people would watch it. I have made a lot of things in my career that I put a lot of time and energy into and I didn't have the following to really get it out there. So it was like, I should be focusing on, you know, building a TikTok following as opposed to making an hour long thing no one's gonna watch. But uh, eventually she kind of just pushed me and, and really encouraged me to do it. And then I decided, you know what, this would be a way to make use of all these jokes I have that are going, that, that I can't do in a year. And um, I ended up getting another producer friend of mine who I've worked with a lot to go on board. And, and then we locked in a date and that's kind of sometimes what I need to really push myself to make a 30 minute set list. I don't like organizing that strictly very much, but then when you set a date, that need of getting a solid 30 starts kicking in and um, it was hard. It was hard because I had a fifth the amount of time I would normally have to run sets. If I was going to film 30 minutes, I would want to be doing that 30 minutes fucking 30 times. And I don't think I ever really got a chance except for once to run it in its entirety. And you've, you discover things when you run it in its entirety, in its order. You can break it up in parts, perform it all over, but there's something you, you only get when you do it. But I didn't have that luxury. And I had to just adapt. And uh, thankfully it was like the 30 minute set. So I really got to just cut anything that wasn't all the way there in my mind. And um, I'm happy with the result. Yeah, for the special, your your producer, Lindsay Elizabeth Hand, is an award-winning screenwriter who's been in consideration for an Emmy. Your executive producer, Jacqueline Thrapp, is an Emmy Award winner, and your director, Andy Buck, is a three-time Emmy Award winner. Who do you like the most? Who do I like the most? That would get me in trouble. <laughs> I, I like them all equally. Uh, they were all They were all great. They all had very different things to bring to the table. Lindsay, actually, I'd filmed a stand-up special early on too early where I was, I was excited. I was eager. I was six months in. And so Lindsay, uh, Elizabeth hand knew how all the things you had to do for a stand-up special, but Jacqueline and Andy come from the news world. And so they, they really were the ones that made the documentary. It opens with like a six minute documentary about what it was like doing this process. And, um, they created this beautiful documentary piece that I, I had very little to, to contribute creatively they I, I was interviewed for it but they just put it together and it was this very great solid six minutes so so they came in from that perspective and uh Lindsay came in from the comedy special perspective and it's good you need especially for this because then we had to deal with new challenges like how do we we needed to find a space it had to be outdoors but it couldn't be too noisy how do you seat people? So we sat people in 
pods where they said before, like, these are friends we have been spending time with. We feel comfortable sitting next to them in a pod. We did the temperature checks, so, you know, the, that hopefully helps at least a little. Um, it, it was not an easy shoot to do, uh, to do two tapings outside. And it rained a lot in the second. And, like, that was another thing where, like, Lindsay and Jacqueline had to respond in the moment to, can we still keep filming? If we pause for 10 minutes, can we come back? Uh, if it's kind of drizzling in the background, will it show up too much? And that's when you need the full team because I'm on stage like trying to just be funny and just focus on that. And I need, uh, I need people running the show. Um, and they did that. And uh, somehow we used most, mostly from the second show, even though there was a lot of rain, which you can see in a, a couple shots, mm -hmm. but it's overall pretty hidden. Well, you certainly had an absolutely fantastic team together for that. I can't wait to see it. My dad has a new 20-year-old girlfriend, which is so weird. He, he likes dating younger. I like dating older. So when we go on a double date, it looks like a family dinner. <laughs> I like older women. You know, some guys like being called daddy in the bedroom. I prefer son. <laughs> someone's fifth wedding. <laughs> Everyone's in Crocs. <laughs> it's BYOB. <laughs> by the fourth stepmom, I was just like, I learned your name, sweetheart, but you'll be gone by Christmas. <laughs> and that was a lollipop because I was six. <laughs> I want to go back to your earliest inspiration. You talk a lot about your parents in your act. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about what it was that first drew you towards comedy writing and stand-up in particular as a kid and whether your parents supported that dream. Uh, my, my parents were financially supportive um, and that's a blessing in and of itself. I don't think they really get it. I don't think they fully... My mom has made an effort in my later years to kind of become interested in it, but I don't think she, like finds it funny. I don't think she is someone who would go to stand-up comedy. And my father, and they're divorced, my father, my theory is that like, he's like me, uh, narcissistic and has this ego where I think he has trouble watching it because he has trouble watching me be like the center of attention in that way. So in, in certain ways, he's, he's, he's unable to be supportive in that sense. I don't know if he's actually seen the special, but he was financially supportive for a long time. Um, and they let me go to the theater camps and the, uh, all, that, all that jazz. So I try not to complain about it too much. You know, it's tough. Your parents can't always fulfill all those roles for you. I mean, Lindsay Elizabeth Hand's uh, mother writes me more about the work I do than, than either of my parents. And you just accept it. You just look for the love where you can find it in this, in this world. Um, and I think that's probably why I became a comedian because I think there was some kind of attention deficit at order at home. And um, I sought it through getting laughs from people. I was awkward. I was not a popular kid. And I think you gravitate towards comedy to get people to like you a little bit more. 
And uh, yeah, I, I always liked comedy. I, I, I grew up with in the, the prime of Dave Chappelle and when Dane Cook was taking off and I knew what stand-up was and it wasn't until kind of uh, the acting not really going where I wanted it to go and being frustrated that I, that I took on stand-up stand full-time. What about your dad's had several girlfriends? What, have any of them been supportive? Uh, yeah, they have been. It's, it's a tough thing. My dad's had a lot of girlfriends over the years and when they break up, it's a very, it's a very uh, sad thing because it's, it's, it's just too weird to maintain a relationship as a, as a what it's like, what is your relationship? It's a, it's a for your dad's former girlfriend. You, you have a history but they're, you wouldn't hang out with them normally. Like, you know, if my parents stopped being my parents, I don't think I would like go out to dinner and hang out with my mom. Uh, there's some stand-up comedian who, she, she, I think it's Beth Stelling, where someone's just like, yeah, if, if, I, if my parents weren't my parents, I don't think they would be my friend. And she was like, well, yeah, it would be weird if you were like, yeah, I hang out with this 65-year-old on the weekends named Kathy who... <laughs> has none of the same interest as me. And that's what it is with like a, with an ex-girlfriend of my father's. Like he's had some that, that were supportive, but it was just weird. It just, the relationship becomes weird and you don't know what to do with it. And uh, it's a sad, it's a sad thing. But I, I, I stay in touch with the, 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 the last significant one. And she's come <laughs> to my shows and my live shows from time to time. And I'm very appreciative. That's nice. Did you, what about um, comedy idols when you're a kid? Um, if you had, you know, you, who were your biggest comedy idols? And you get extra points if you can get through this section without naming any sexual predators. Oh, wow. Well, that's, that's, that's tough. I mean, I was going to say Jerry Seinfeld, but it depends if you think when he <laughs> dated the 17-year-old when he was 33, if that was predatory or not. Ooh, I but know I think about that. It was, it was, it was legal. Uh, so at least we can keep him there. Um. <laughs> I mean, Seinfeld was definitely like an early, I watched him when I, before I knew like what comedy was and um, that show, Seinfeld was just such a, a, cornerstone, a cornerstone of my life. And my dad watched it too. We watched it together. So I'd say Seinfeld, I, I went through all the phases any, any male of my generation went through, which is like Adam Sandler when I was younger, uh, Will Ferrell for a big chunk um and then i love chappelle chappelle show was right when i was in high school and we we loved it dane cook um and then it's only until i really got into stand-up that i was like oh john john mulaney or anthony jeselnik or maria bamford or um uh dave chappelle or chris rock and i guess i i won't say louis ck but but uh if i could the fact is he was a gigantic like, uh, whoa, this is the best stand-up I've ever heard. And that's just a part of the, like, anyone my age, that was a, a huge chunk of it. Um, and, yeah, I love Maria Bamford. I love Sarah Silverman. Um, and now I just listen to so many stand-ups that it, it's a smorgasbord of famous stand-ups and people I work with sometimes that I think are just, like, geniuses and... Um, and that's that's a cool part of stand up is just like the further you go, the more you work with people you you think are astounding, um, and they gradually become peers. P 
people who were famous to me before are more peer-like now. And uh, that's cool too. And there's still all these mm -hmm. heroes. You know, I think if, if, if I ever got to a place where I considered John Mulaney a stand-up peer, that'd be crazy. Uh, but if I was ever on a lineup with him now, it'd be very cool. It'd be like, wow, I'm working with who I think is a genius at this art form. Yeah, so, you actually do a, a really good John Mulaney impression. Oh, yeah. You do a really good John Mulaney impression. Thank you. It's, it's rusty these days. I don't do it too much because if I if I do it, if I don't even listen to Mulaney too much because if I do, I will start uh, copying his intonation. Um, that that it's just natural. That's why I picked it. It's just like that intonation comes out naturally. And uh, <laughs> I don't do a lot of impressions. I just Jeff Goldblum and John Mulaney. And uh, there's a new politician now. A new he's he's in the news called John Ossoff. But I, I'm not a big impressions guy. It's very hard for me. It takes me a long, long time. And some I've like plum can't. I couldn't do Trump to save my life. And I've heard him like every American heard him talk for countless and hours and hours and hours. And I can't, it doesn't come out. So, you know, John Mulaney it is. But the ones you do, you're so good at. You're just fantastic. <laughs> now that's not true, of course, but we are Italian. And uh, if you don't know what times, we do a lot of hugging, we kiss each other goodbye, all that stuff. And my, my roommate, who's not Italian, when he saw my dad and I kiss, he was just like... <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Do you kiss your dad in public? And I was like, yeah, yeah. You know what would be weird? If I only kissed him in private. <laughs> Looking at things that, that people have been doing in 2020, there's been a lot of cooking. Um, do you cook at all? I started when I was in Harlem. <laughs> I started like I was not, I never was, I mean, like I could do the basics. I'm not entirely clueless. I, I am, of course, um, I am, of course, referring to the infamous pepper oh, incident. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> now, we, we call it a capsicum in Australia, but you, you posted a picture online, capsicum. Wait, the, you call the red pepper a capsicum? Yes. Because that's its call name. It a, a red capsicum as opposed to a green capsicum? Yeah. Green capsicum, yellow capsicum, red capsicum. <laughs> now you understand. Talk about, sounds... you, want, you, you want an abrivo. Pepper <laughs> is a lot easier than capsicum. What about capso? Capsi. Is that what it's, is that what, where does that term? That's the real term? I think that's the real name. Yeah. Pepper is yeah. cute. It's catchy. It's alliterative. Pepper is, is what we would call peppercorn. and Or yeah, the little or the hot pepper, which you, you do call a hot pepper. I think we just call you it. You do call it a hot pepper. Yeah, we just call it a pepper, I think. Doesn't a capsicum feel like just uh, inflated pepper? It's not it hot. It feels similar. Actually, yeah, it's not hot, though. It's kind of sweet. Anyway, you, you posted a picture online of a dish that you were preparing in which you appeared to tear a pepper with your bare hands like an animal. Well, that and was the not worst... the joke part. That <laughs> the was worst not the thing joke was part. you forgot to remove the sticker. What were you thinking? So I 
so I was cooking and it was a very basic meal, just peppers and chicken. And I noticed as I was finishing it that the sticker was still on. I thought, oh, this is funny that I missed it somehow, that I cooked it fully with the sticker on. So I took a picture and I posted it saying cooking is going great. But I think the reason it went viral is because like a lot of people called out that I had torn the pepper apart with my hands. That was not what the weird part was to me. That's how I tear a lot of my peppers up, just by hand. And people started roasting me for that. And then people said, the chicken looked dry and the stove looked bad. And I was like, oh, I thought the only joke was this sticker that I noticed. And uh, people took it, people took it like that I didn't even see the sticker. Like I was just the dumbest, but the pepper thing was, was not, I was not trying to make a joke with that. So that was a, a learning experience. Someone sent me a really nice knife uh, and it got featured yeah. in like a British tabloid, a French tabloid, a German tabloid, a tabloid. It was shocking to see my Google search come up and get an email saying they were writing about my cooking in German. I know. I think maybe people assumed because you're a comedian, you couldn't afford a knife or something. I'm not sure. Sure, But uh, you received a lot of flack and you made international headlines. Like you said, one person who posted it said it was the, (laughs) sorry, said it was the worst thing an Italian has ever done. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Um, the, (laughs) The story was picked up by newspapers in the UK, Germany, the mirror, the daily star. Is this, is this what you thought you'd be famous for internationally? No, but I'll take whatever I can get. I uh, <laughs> I would love to do a cooking show where someone tried to teach me how to, to, to cook. I'd love that. Well, I think you might have earned yourself a spot on a cooking show, a sympathy spot, perhaps. I uh, I sympathize in it a small, as much uh, a much smaller way. All, all my years of uh, of sharing my music, and then Seal this year saw a story that I posted about potatoes about how big my potatoes were. And I was like, really? That's what you're going to see? I saw my mom and it's so annoying. My mom, literally, literally every time I see my mom, she always asks if I have a boyfriend yet. Like, she knows I'm straight. (laughs) I'm straight, but I'm very theatrical. So like, I figure women, but only with jazz hands. you a favor now it's my birthday next week and i know that you do birthday messages for people as jeff goldblum so i'm gonna ask you to give me a jeff message right here normally i charge money for it on cameo but sure (laughs) um uh yes ah amina Mm, happy birthday i uh i can't see i assume 
uh, 25, 26. Uh, we'll go with that. Uh, you know, I like young, old, whatever, but legal. Mm, keep it legal. That's not, you know, I'm a good guy. Jeff Goldblum. And uh, happy birthday. This got weird, fast, but what matters is it's your birthday. And happy birthday. And uh, remember, uh, music mm, will find a way. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm actually turning 42, but I appreciate you. Yeah. Sure. But I do. That is how old people think I look. Hopefully not behave. Um, Gianmarco Zorezi, thank you so much for joining me on The Lounge. Shelf Life is available on Amazon Prime in the US and the UK. Watch the trailer on YouTube. Hopefully soon we'll get it in Australia. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Take care. Take care and stay safe. And now I'm going to stop recording. Stop. The Lounge is brought to you by Sky Woman Productions in Australia. Produced by Travis Curry at Curry Media in Canada. Subscribe on YouTube, Twitch, or wherever you find your podcasts. And watch us live via the Amina Hughes pages on Facebook or Twitter. I would like to extend a big thank you to my very special guests and to all of you beautiful people for watching or listening. Thank you for joining me on The Lounge. Thank you.